0: The reading this morning is taken from the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. 14 through 22. This is the words to the church in Laodicea. And to the angel of the church of Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. As I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. This is the word of the Lord. Amen.
1: If you've been with us, you know we're in in Galatians. We're going to jump right back into Galatians this week. We are uh, about halfway through chapter four now. We've been working our way through Galatians every week. And what we've been saying, uh, just by way of review, I like to say this every week so we're, we're caught up right to where we are. Maybe you've missed a few weeks or you're visiting or whatever. I want you to know where we are and where we're, where we're kind of landing today. And what we've been saying is Galatians is written to the churches in Galatia in Paul's writing to correct some bad teaching. And the bad teaching is that's crept into the church is Jesus plus some other things. That's the teaching that's come in that, what, the, what the, the false teachers had come into the church and they had started saying you have to be a Christian. You have to put your faith in Jesus, but then you have to do all these other rules And you have to keep all this other stuff and you have to keep these laws and rituals and all these things. And they started to believe that and they started to do that. And Paul's so frustrated. And he writes this letter. It's a very personal letter because he's the one that planted that church. He was there. He's the one that originally told them the gospel. And he takes part of it personally because they're turning from what he told them. And that's what we saw in the first two chapters, because all really almost all of the first two chapters is Paul saying, here's why you should listen to me over these other teachers So it's a very personal application at the beginning. He's saying, you should listen to me, not them. And we saw that in the first two chapters. And then chapter three, we hit and it really turned to a more theological defense. Paul starts going back to the Old Testament and he starts saying what I taught you about the gospel, that it is Christ alone, faith in what Jesus did for you alone. He said that goes all the way back to the beginning and he goes back into the Old Testament and he starts making his case and he goes through all these different things and he talks about Abraham and Moses and how all those things were pointing to Christ and he's working through. And that's kind of where we're getting into what we saw a couple weeks ago is he says that he says the law, the law that came through Moses, the Ten Commandments and all the ritual and all that stuff. He said, God gave that to point you to Jesus. And he says he points you to the promise that he gave Abraham. And we talked about that, how that was the, the promise that was given to Abraham is Christ. I will bless the world through your seed. So he's saying that was all pointing to Abraham. And then then we saw the next week we saw or uh, last week, the experiential side of that and how uh, they were um, what that means when we really start to embrace it. And that's what we read from the beginning this morning, that we become sons. We become heirs when we accept what God has done for us. We're adopted. We're brought in and we're sons and heirs. And he says he tells us this wonderful truth and we get the Holy Spirit and he goes back and he talks to him about their experience. It's a very experiential side. And then this week, we're going to pick up on that. And Paul's really going to shift gears again a little bit. And what he's going to talk about is the problems that they're having with embracing this freedom, why they're not fully grasping what he told us last week. And really, with the main thing, I think we're going to see what Paul's saying is what's happening is they've taken their eyes off of Christ. That's really the problem. Maybe you see now why why we sing. Turn your eyes upon Jesus to lead into this sermon, because that's really what the problem was. They were starting to take their eyes off of what Christ alone had done and make it about other things. And that's really the problem. When we shift our eyes off of him, we get distracted and other things will fill its place. And that's partly what we're going to see this morning. So with that in mind, just kind of background of where we are. If you want to look with me, we're going to be in Galatians chapter four. And we're going to look at verses eight through 20. And this is the main idea what we're talking about here in eight through 20. So let's read that. And then we'll get into those verses and really look at them Formerly, When you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus My little children, for whom I'm again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Let's pray, and then we're going to look at those verses. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you what it teaches us. We thank you that it is just as relevant today as it was when Paul wrote these words under your inspiration almost 2,000 years ago. I pray that we would look at it today, we would let it inform us, we would let it convict us, we would let it bring the things in our lives to light that are taking our focus off of you. We thank you for what you've done for us. We pray that your spirit would be here this morning to open our eyes and our ears to hear and and apply your word. Thank you for all you've done for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we look at this this morning... We're looking, like I said, the problem of when we take our eyes off of Christ. That's really what's kind of under all this, what Paul's saying. And there's three questions, three things I want us to look at. One, what are the signs we are doing so? What, what is there that shows us when we're starting to do that, when we're starting to drift and our focus is going somewhere else? Two, how do we guard against that? And then three, what does it look like when our focus is on him? What does it look like when we really do focus on him? So let's start with the what are the signs we're doing so. And before I even jump right into what Paul says, I kept coming back to a book I had read as I studied this this week. And this this phrase kept coming to mind. It's a book I read probably about a year ago. And the phrase was routinization of charisma. And what that means, what the author said in this book was talking about how when religions are started and when a. Uh, uh, Big happening, something people get really excited about. People are really pumped up at the beginning. Right? That's just our human nature. We get really excited about a new thing and we're all excited about it. But then over time, it starts to become routine. And you see it in all world religions. There's an explosion whenever they start off. You see that in, in, with Christianity and acts. People, we can't stop speaking about what Christ has done. And it goes out and it goes everywhere. But over time, it starts to become somewhat routine and we get into our routine and the sad truth is what happens is we get to a routine to where the greatest truth in all the world that god came to us in the form of a man to do what we couldn't do becomes routine it becomes ho-hum becomes average we know the story and we've got it and okay and i think when that happens what the author was saying in the book as i was reading when that happens you have to go back and you have to grasp that reality over and over And that's kind of what we're going to see this morning. I think that's what happened partly with the Galatians for them to be led astray. It had to have started to become a little bit of, yeah, this is the normal now. And that's when we do that. We're in a very, very scary place. It's a very scary place when it becomes routine. And that's what our first reading said this morning. If you didn't catch that. And by the way, just just so as you're thinking, as you're sitting here in the mornings before, if you look at your bulletin, read the first reading and read this and see if you can make the connection, because there usually is one. I'm trying. I'm trying for it to be there. And I'm going to show you exactly this morning is is a warning to us. This is from Revelation three, what we just read this morning. And this is Christ to the church in Laodicea. They had started to uh, they had started into this routinization of charisma and what Christ says to them. Is I know your works and you are neither cold nor hot would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. That's how serious this issue is. We're talking about this morning. Those are Jesus's words to the church in Laodicea. And they are his words to us today. It's that important. So I just want that to be in your mind as we look into this, because this idea of being lukewarm And taking your eyes off of Christ go hand in hand. They go perfectly together. When we start to get into the routine and Christ becomes routine and our faith is just something that's part of our life and it's not the center thing, then those go right together. And that's a scary, scary place to be. So just heed that warning as we look at this passage this morning. So as we jump in here, though, to what Paul says, how do we know when we're starting down that path? When Jesus is getting moved to the side. When we're lukewarm, look at verses eight and nine with me. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? And we touched on that just briefly last week because Paul mentions the. The. Uh, being enslaved to the elementary principles in verse three. And we touched on it just for a minute last week. And what we said was there's kind of some debate on exactly what he means, the elementary principles of the world. Most scholars think it's partly a spiritual warfare. There's a demonic side to that, which is very real in the Bible. Jesus talked about it quite often. Um, But it's also when we have other religions and other things that we turn to that start to take a primary focus in our life. And that's what it was in Galatia, by the way. They were turning to different uh, rituals and things, and they were making it all about that. But they were taking their eyes off of Christ and making it about something else. And that was the problem. But when we consider what it is for our lives, I want us to stop and spend a few moments today. We hit that real briefly last week. But what are those things today? Look at what he says in verse 8. He says, you were enslaved. He's talking about before they became believers, but it also applies to what they've come back to. You are enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. And I want you to understand what that means and what he's saying here and what it means. The reality of what Paul's talking about is idolatry. It's the first two commandments, idolatry. A lot of times we say idolatry and you think, okay, 10 commandments, no other images before me. And we immediately in our mind jump to way back when and they bowed down and they worship stuff and different things. But when we do that, when we say that, we're missing so much of what it is. We're missing the heart of what it is. That's part of it. That is true. We're not supposed to have images to take God's place. But when we go to that, it's so much more and it's so much greater. And I want us just to have this in our mind. Idols, idolatry is when any good thing becomes the ultimate thing. And by the way, that implies when we talk about that definition that idols in our lives are usually good things. There's things that are really good that we should spend time on and we should like and we should love and and give our attention to. But the problem becomes when they start to push God out of the way and they become central. That's when we step into idolatry and that's when we become enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. So you may ask, okay, I get the idolatry. If something takes God's place, that's idolatry. But how does that enslave us? Because he says we're enslaved to those things when we do that. If you've thought about that, what that means to be enslaved by it, and it means this, if you really think about it, if anything other than what God has done for you in Jesus, the true heart of the gospel, if anything other than that is a requirement for you being happy or worthy or to ease your anxiety, that thing will become your slave master. It will enslave you. Because if your happiness, your joy, your worth, is dependent on something other than God alone, when that thing... uh, I'll give you an example. I've got a bunch of examples I was thinking about. The first one, though, think about this. The love... Your loved ones or your children. It's a good one for Father's Day. The love of your children. If you let them take the central place in your life, and they should, obviously, it's good to love your kids and to take care of them and them to be so important in your life, and they should be, but when they become the thing that defines your happiness... When being a good parent becomes the thing that defines your worth, you will be enslaved to your children. Because if your worth is by being a good parent, your kids are going to disappoint you at some point. Just, just so you know, that will happen. If you have kids and they've grown beyond this tall, you know that. Um, But you'll be disappointed. If your worth is wrapped up in how good my kids have grown up to be, and by the way, your kids may grow up to be wonderful and great, and I hope that you're teaching them, and they do, and that's the case, but it's still a false security even if they're great. Because at some point, it's not going not to stand up, and that enslaves you. Or, or today, a lot of times, it becomes, I'm going to give my kids everything they want. I want them to be happy. And you start giving and giving and giving, and you do all this, and then you're enslaved to their happiness. Then suddenly you can't, you know, they get to be 16 and I want a brand new car and oh no, I can't afford a brand new car. And then they're upset with you. And then your happiness is enslaved by you've made their child your idol. That's what you've done. If your happiness and your worth is dependent on your child, you've made them your idol. And I say it's so subtle. It's so easy to slip over that line. And I was thinking about that this week in Jeremiah 17. Jeremiah says, that our heart is deceitful above all things and it is desperately sick. And what Jeremiah's talking about is our sin nature. And we slide into making things idols, really good things, good things that God gave us to enjoy. And then we start to make them central things. And it all falls apart when we do that. And it's a problem. And we have so many things in our lives that do that. Um, I was trying to think of good examples. One is maybe your job. How well you're doing in your work, if your happiness and your worth comes from your job, then it's become an idol. And it doesn't mean you shouldn't want to do your job the best you can. It doesn't mean you shouldn't work hard. You should do those things. But they should always be secondary to your relationship with God. Because when that becomes the thing, it's the same thing, the same cycle. That becomes the thing. And then what happens if you lose your job? Your worth is crushed. Or you're so frustrated or you're whatever. But it should have never been in that position to begin with. We're making it an idol when we're so tied to it. A great example as far as I said at the beginning, it's it's your worth or your happiness or what eases your anxiety. I think every election cycle we see how politics slip into being an idol in our lives. And I say that because you see how crushed people are when their candidate doesn't win. Or the flip side, the rejoicing of, oh, everything's great now because this guy won. And the reason we do that in our political system, not hopefully not in the church, but in our political system today, we take a candidate or an ideology or one of these things and we make it the answer. If we just get this guy in office, everything will be all right. Well, that guy in office may make things better, but he will not make everything all right. And the reason he won't make everything right is because there's one the problem and it's sin and there's only one the answer and it's God through what he's done in Jesus Christ. And when we take anything else and slide it into that place, you're going to be disappointed and you're going to be anxious and you're going to be frustrated. It inevitably will happen at some point. Now, now hear me on that. That doesn't mean you shouldn't be involved in different things or you shouldn't care about your job or love your children or even care about politics. But they should be in the proper place. They should always be secondary of your love for God. And when they don't, we fall apart. It's a mess. So why do we as Christians do that over and over? Why do we slip into this? The church was doing it here. Paul's writing to them. They're doing it. Why do we slip into it as Christians? It goes back partly to what I just said from Jeremiah. Jeremiah. It's because our heart is diseased. We're sinful. And the very heart of our sinfulness, you go all the way back to Adam and Eve. And I've said this a lot. Said this a lot recently is the very heart of the original sin was self-centered. Adam and Eve want to be like God. I want to make it about me. And you can see that when you really follow it through and all these different idols that pop up in your life, they really come back in a lot of ways to self-centeredness. And you may say, well, that doesn't seeing how, how do some of those things come out of self-centeredness when we're doing, dealing with our kids and you're, you're getting your happiness and you're trying to make them happy by giving and giving and giving, and you're always going to make your kids happy. And that's how you get your, you're trying to control your happiness with something you can control. It's your desperate attempt to try to control all of it. It's about me. I've got to do it. I've got to make them happy so that I have a happy life. And it becomes, you see how that becomes about you. It's the same thing with politics. and this can't we're trying to control the world. This will fix everything. It's our feeble attempts as humans to put ourselves in God's place. We've got to fix it. And we're taking him and we're moving him to the side and we're not letting him be sovereign anymore. And it becomes all about us and it makes us the sinner. And it's so, so, oh, so subtle. It's so easy to slip into it being about me. And I'm... Hear me. I'm not pointing the finger at me. I we all struggle. I struggle with this every day. You so easily can slip to the middle and make it about us or about me. One of the most subtle ways. And I thought about this this week and it hit me so hard when I thought about it because I've done this. But when we slip into making our means of worship an idol. We do that. We'll go to church and it's our favorite songs that week and we go, oh, I worship so good. It was so great today Or I've actually heard many times in church and it pains me to say this. But the reality is I didn't know that song. or I really didn't like those. So I just really couldn't worship today. Do you understand what's being said when we utter those words? We are saying. That the creator God of the universe who saved us by laying down his life for me and came to do all that I couldn't do is second to my personal opinions on worship. That is idolatry. And I am right in the middle of it. The idol is me and my personal wants and what I like. And that's how I worship. Do you see how that is? Worship is not about me. I hate to tell you, it's not about you either. <laughs> when we come in here, we're coming. True worship is an overflow of your heart, of how Christ has affected you and what he's done for you. And you come here and you offer your worship back to him for who he is. It's not come in here and we rile you up and hopefully maybe you get a feeling and then you can worship. Worship comes from your heart. Anything else from besides that. When it's not dependent completely and absolutely and totally on what God has done for you in an overflow of your heart. We're not worshiping. Jesus says in John four that we are to worship in spirit and in truth. And when you read that passage and he's talking to the woman at the well, who's a Samaritan, and he's talking to her about how they will only worship on a certain mountain, the Samaritans. And he says, I tell you, the time is coming where it doesn't matter where you worship. And he could have just as easily said, it doesn't matter what songs you sing. And it doesn't matter what order the worship service is in, because it's about worshiping in spirit and in truth. And in spirit and in truth means it's an overflow of your heart for what Christ has done for you. You see the difference? And it is so, so subtle. If you've ever read uh, C.S. Lewis, the Screwtape Letters, one of the letters between the demons says, Uh, If they become a Christian and they're regularly going to church, start getting them to think about all the things that are happening in church that they don't like. And we laugh at it because we go, yeah, yeah, that's true. And that's why when you read that book and you read through it, it is it's funny. But at the same time, it's really, really sad and it's really convicting because if you're here every week, well, Satan hadn't kept you from getting here. So now I'm going to go to work on why you're here and what it looks like. And we have to be so careful to guard our hearts that it doesn't become that a good thing doesn't become the main thing. So it doesn't become about us because when it becomes about us, we're slipping into being lukewarm. We're taking our eyes off of Christ and we're opening ourselves up to exactly Jesus's warning in Revelation three. Worship should never be about. The specific order, the specific whatever I was thinking of an example of, of different times. where It was just a wonderful time of worship. And what kept coming to my mind was being a senior in high school and going on a mission trip to Jamaica. And we went to the middle of the island in the poorest of the poor area. And we were helping a guy and his family build a house that was probably as big as this section out of block walls. And they loved the Lord and they would sing songs while they were working and they were so excited. And they didn't have anything that we have as far as wealth or comfort. And I remember going to church with them on Sunday and they met in a tent. And it was 90 something degrees in Jamaica. And they had about a three and a half hour worship service. They sang the same song for 30 minutes. And they didn't care. It wasn't about the song. It wasn't about, oh, this is my song. It was just pouring your heart out for what God had given them. And when you look at what they had earthly wise, you would say, what are they so excited about? Because we live in, a, in an area where we're so wealthy and so we just don't even get it. And it was wonderful because that's what it was. It was an overflow of the heart and the form didn't matter and how long it was didn't matter and all, none of it. And it was really, truly focused on him and him alone. I bring up all that about the worship because that's a lot of what's happening with the Galatians, even in this very passage. Look at verses 10 and 11 with me. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I have labored over you in vain. What Paul is saying is they've made worship. They've made their time together. They've made being a Christian all about uh, ritual and the things they do and the things they add to it. And what Paul's saying is you've taken your eyes off of Christ and you've made it about all this other stuff. You see how the, the correlation there, they're slaves to the ritual. Look at verse 17. It goes hand in hand with what we're just saying. They make much of you, but for no good purpose, they want to shut you out that you may make much of them. He's talking about the Galatians. He says they're making much of you. They're making much of the I'm sorry. He's talking about the false teachers making much of the Galatians and they're making much of the Galatians by saying you're saved by Jesus. Plus what you do. You see, when you do that, you make your standing before God about you. It's not just Jesus. It's you plus Jesus. It's what you do. And when you do that, you're taking your eyes off of him. And that's exactly what Paul's saying. It's okay to make much of someone in the proper context. But not when it's salvation and pointing to what you do in that you're missing it. And that's what Paul tells them. They're moving God to the side. And when we do that, what they were saying is God needs me. That's exactly that's really what they're saying. If you're if you're coming to Christ, if you're coming to God and you're saying, yes, I'm a Christian and I believe what Jesus did. But I need to do this. What you're telling God is, God, you need me to complete my salvation. You're making it about you. You're taking your eyes off of Christ and turning it solely on your your idol is your works. It's you. So you see how just when you take all this, I hope that gives you a clear picture of ways we do it. And you can probably think of a lot of different ways where we start to push God to the side. There's tons of them. So what do we do? What is the answer? What does Paul say here that helps us not have that be the case? Look at verses uh, 12 to 14. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know, it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. Now, that may not seem like how is that the answer? To us taking our eyes off what Paul's saying is he's going back to when the Galatians first became Christians and he says, don't you remember what it was like? When you became a Christian, he says, you were fine giving everything up to me. What Paul tells us, we don't know exactly what the deal was, but he had some kind of ailment that it was a problem that he had to stay there and they had to take care of him. And he says, you didn't even care. And what he's saying is, is he's going back to that and he's trying to get them to see what it was like when they first became Christians. He says, go back and recapture what it meant to you when you first understood what Christ has done for you. That's why I started with that routinization of charisma. When it becomes the most beautiful truth in the world becomes ordinary, we're in trouble. And Paul's saying, don't let that happen. Go back to what it was. Think about it. Think hard about what it was at the beginning. And then look at what he says in verse 19, because these two go together. He says, my little children, for whom I'm again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. When you take those verses and you put them together, what you see is Paul saying, you got to go back to what it was like and grasp what it means to be a Christian. When you first understood it in the excitement that you knew what Christ had done for you. But then he says. I'm in anguish of childbirth that Christ is being formed in you. What he's saying, though, is once that happens, it's a lifelong process. And I'm in anguish of childbirth for Christ to be formed in you because it takes time. And you have to keep going back and you have to keep applying the gospel and you have to keep going back to what it was at the beginning. When you first got who Jesus is, the Bible tells us over and over about how to do that as a church, Hebrews is a great resource for that. It says, do not neglect to meet together. It says, make sure you meet together and you exhort one another and you tell one another what Christ has done for you. That's what Hebrews talks about. Become furiously obsessed with the gospel to the point that you're telling each other over and over and over. How do we guard against it? We go back to the gospel and we make much of him and we tell each other and we encourage each other. That's how we do it. I can't tell you what a blessing it's been the last couple of months. Every time I visit and talk with people, I say, tell me how you became a Christian. And I've heard so many wonderful stories of people coming to Christ. And it has been a wonderful blessing for me. My challenge in light of this today as you leave. Ask someone that you worship with regularly. If you're visiting, ask anybody here. Take your time and ask somebody. Ask somebody that you regularly worship with how they became a Christian. Let them encourage you by telling you how Christ came into their life. It's one of the best guards against it becoming routine. When you hear other people's stories about how God entered their life and saved them. Not only that, we should be sharing answered prayer. It's wonderful that we gather and pray together and say these things, but we need to be telling people, I saw God moving in this way. We had a wonderful example of that on Tuesday night. If you were here, Jane Yost stood up and said, you've been praying for me and I am healed and I am so much better. And God is working when we do that. It's an encouragement and it it keeps going. And that's why we're supposed to meet together and keep holding one another accountable and keep saying and telling. So it never becomes routine. It never becomes about, oh, what God did back then. God is living and active and working today. And we keep holding each other to that. So that's how we do it. That's the second part. Well, how do we guard against it? What about what does it look like when we do? We've talked a lot about idols in our life and how we can get our focus off. What does it look like when we actually do it? And I think verse 15 just in and of itself is a great example. Paul says, what what then has become of the blessing you felt? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Paul's going back to when they first became Christians in Galatia. And he says, you remember what it's like? And he says, I know what it's like. You would have given me your eyes if you could have. And that leads us to think that Paul's ailment had to do with his eyes because he says that. But what he's saying is you would have done anything for me. And the reason they would have done anything for him is because the reality of what Christ had done for them was so new and so crystal clear and so exciting that Christ was in them and they were living it. That's what it looks like. Instead of being selfish and our idols being us and us controlling, what happens is you go out and you love others and it becomes outwardly focused. And it's not about you. And it's not about all your stuff and what you think and my preferences and all that. It's about loving others. It's about giving your eyes if you could have is what Paul says. I want you to just. That's what he's saying. That's what it looks like when you die to yourself and you put others before you and you love them more than you love yourself. Just because that's exactly what Christ did. That's what it means when Christ is in us, when he is formed in us, that's what he did. He gave up all to come for us to do what we couldn't do and lay down his life so that we could be accepted. When he's formed in you, that's what it starts to look like. I'm going to put others above and over me because he did that for me. And it doesn't matter the person or what the situation is. That's that. That's what the reality should be. We're going to end there today and we'll, we'll move on in Galatians next week. But that's my prayer as we consider as we end today. That we're that type of people, that we love each other and we exhort each other and we are so outwardly focused that it's never about us and all our stuff, but it's just about loving him and loving others through that. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. I thank you that you've preserved it for us. I thank you for the uh, experiences that you led Paul to that he could then write this letter down for the Galatians and and for us today, that we can see clearly how we sometimes slip off and we take our eyes off of you. I pray that we would never do that. Let us be a church that is so solely focused on you and you alone that it just shows in everything we do how we love each other, how we're together, how we move forward, how we worship. Let that always be our focus. We thank you. Thank you for all you've done for us. And we pray it in Jesus name. Amen.